Dun, dun, dun. Good morning, Digital Wildcatters. Here we are, April 25th. Fourth. Fifth. 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 It's dropping. We're recording the 24th. All righty. Let's jump right in. Story number one is what, Kirk? We called it last week and the week prior about Tucker Carlson probably departing Fox. And uh, why are we always ahead of everyone else? We are. We're ahead of it. Uh, we need to shoot down the rumors. He is not joining Digital Wildcatters, at least not yet. Well, despite I, the fact that he was seen hoodie shopping, exactly. We are we are negotiating, and I I've been you know talking to the little man about you know play hard to get, play hard to get a little. We need to do that. That's cool. Now let's go. Story number one: Supreme Court actually issued something today. Mark, I couldn't tell what it was. It said it was anti-Exxon, Suncor, and Chevron. What did they say? Just a ruling on the appeals that they had in front of the Supreme Court related to some state-level uh, climate change or climate damage liability. Uh, the Supreme Court basically uh, shot down the appeal or declined the uh, the appeal and is allowing the state-level um, litigation to proceed. And, I, and so the, the key is supposedly in federal system, it's more favorable to companies. And so this, whether Exxon, Suncor, and Chevron can be responsible for climate change will be done in state courts instead, which theoretically are more favorable to yeah, the and, plaintiffs. And I think it's just all part of the continuing theme of holding the majors in particular accountable for things like record profits, et cetera, which we can talk about a little bit because the first quarter earnings season kicks off, at least for the majors this week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll just roll into that. Well, hold on. I will say, though, I mean, not that the, the Supreme Court's ever really that consistent, but the Constitution is explicit and they only grant powers to the federal government for specific purposes. This is not a purpose. So I actually think the ruling pushing back to the states is a good call. Now, that's probably not why they made the call, but still, I, I think this is constitutional, if you will. No, it's, I mean, say what you want about this court. You can dislike this court. They've been very consistent on your point exactly. Unless it's explicitly granted to the federal government under the Constitution, states or the Stay people out. have the right. That was their abortion ruling. That's right. Know, whether you liked it or not. So I didn't see what the decision split was. It was six three. Six but three. I didn't see. I didn't see who it was. I didn't read the majority or minority opinion either. All right, earnings season. What do we got? Well, it really kicked off with Schlumberger on Friday, which is just the somewhat of the blur between Q four and Q one. It seems seems like Q one Q four go on for about four and a half months. Um, Exxon and Chevron are this week. BP and Shell are next week. Uh, I've seen in, in various related stories, or at least where the majors are cited, you know, record profits, um, you know, how can Shell continue to spend billions on innovation yet, you know, not do anything about shrinking their oil and gas profile? Well, they still got to make money. Um, the combined super majors, so Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, and Total, Q1 earnings total just under $36 billion, and we'll bring up our favorite comparative in Apple for Q1, according to estimates that I saw on Coifin, uh, looking at a $22 billion earnings comparative for Q1. So again, it's just going to be more of that drumbeat about 
Oh, well, and gas companies making so much windfall profit tax, cut, right. cut costs to the consumer, blah, 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 blah. And in terms of ranking, this Q1 is expected to be for the majors is expected to be seventh all time. Q2 of last year was was the peak. Right. At least the contemporary peak. And we've got to be trending down, though, on on earnings because, I mean, natural gas has had a two handle on it for a while now. Oil kicked around in the 70s for a while. So crude's been volatile and we've had a couple of air pockets here. Um, March was a a fairly significant one that we, you know, the the discussions of, you know, 60 next versus going back to 80. Um, If you look at Schlumberger's numbers, they they beat or met on revenue and EBITDA, but they were light on margins. And so, you know, the business has gotten more difficult from things like inflationary the pressures creeping fault, in. As they should say. That's the, the number one excuse always by every oil field service company. It's not yeah. my fault. And speaking of gas, overall rig count was actually down nine last week. Horizontal rig count was down nine. Oily rig count was down eleven, which means, well, actually, the 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 uptick was in Haynesville. So clearly, the the memo has not been that's crazy How fully can get, received. Can economics really be good enough in the Haynesville that at two something dollar gas you're going to be drilling? I guess. Well, we saw this uh, years ago that you have to keep drilling to make interest payments. I mean, that could be could be more of a. I, I need to look into the numbers, but that there are some other reasons why even at two dollar cash you keep going. I, I didn't I didn't see where those rigs were at least in the private versus public operator class. I could take a look at that, but let's let's bring the, let's circle back on that next week. I, I think there's there's general. Um, anxiety or expectation mm-hmm. pin up about, you know, when are we going to see a rollover in gas directed rig count? We've talked about it, you know, for the past several weeks, just given the the backdrop of of um of the macro the oil and gas macro framework. And I could understand it staying flat because, you know, back a year ago, nine dollar gas, you walked into me and said, here are my rig rates for three years, sign the three year contract. I could have been talked into that. So I kind of get it staying flat. I don't get the gas-directed rigs going up. And two is is a blip. Who knows? Maybe those were already contracted. But it's got the wrong sign in front of it. It does. It Here's does. what's interesting, though. As we are expecting profits to go down because of volatility, because of gas prices, interesting enough, and this is another first on Digital Wildcatters, we keep nailing it. But remember when I said, they need to spend more money in exploration. Well, exploration is actually set to rise to $65 billion this year from $57.5 billion last year. So someone's listening to our show and they're they're saying, hey, we need to take some of these profits and redirect. So that's interesting. That's encouraging. It is encouraging, assuming we want the world to uh, remain on hydrocarbons, which kind of rolls, rolls into the next story. <laughs> so a few well, days ago. Why? few days ago, Earth Day, and I have a little tidbit on Earth Day. I know you do. It was actually created in response to the January 28th, 1969 blowout of Platform A, which was drilled by Union Oil, offshore California, boom, spilled 3 million U.S. gallons and killed more than 10,000 seabirds, dolphins, seals, and seal lions. Was that Santa Barbara? 
That was right off Santa Barbara. That's right. Santa Barbara yeah. Channel. Santa Barbara Channel. Damn, those surfers are were pissed. They were, they were very pissed. It ruined it. So it was a bad day for the oil and gas business. And in response, we got Earth Day. And we got a lot in the way of predictions there. So, Mark, what were your favorite predictions from Earth Day I'm gonna, I'm gonna back say in what? Was it 72? 72. So this, yeah. um, God, no, 71. Mark, this is the 71. 52nd anniversary. Mark was only okay. 35. So do you remember <laughs> that? <laughs> wow. Shots fired on BDE. I'm going to say you first, Chuck. You, you actually, I think, tweeted out something about it earlier this week. Or yeah, last week. So that wasn't my that wasn't my favorite quote, although that was a that was a really good one. I wrote down my favorite quote. Ken Watt, who was one of the founders of Earth Day, he said that in the year 2000, there will be no more crude. You'll drive into a gas station and say, fill her up, sir. And they'll say, sorry, we have no more gasoline. So Ken Watt said that. He also said that it would be 4% colder global wow. temperatures in 1990 and 11% colder by 2000. Because you remember back in the early 70s, that's when we had the, uh, the new ice age coming. Right. And he was worried about nitrogen actually accumulating in the atmosphere to a level that would literally block out all light right. making, from making it through the atmosphere. Because it was the science. Yeah, I'll close a, it off with probably the more famous name of those prognosticators and Paul Ehrlich. Yeah, I was just about to pull it out. <laughs> he predicted mass starvation would would start within 10 years of the first Earth Day and claim between 102 million, 100 million and 200 million lives per year. It was called the population bomb. Right. Wrote it with his wife. Yep. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what do you think they were on in the 1960s to, to write it? <laughs> that was true. And unrepentant about being wrong, no doubt. So it's well known that a lot of these predictions that that were precipitated or came out of the first Earth Day have been proven consistently wrong. But if you look at the, I guess, the political tone, the backdrop, and the fractured nature of the debate and the discussion over energy and, and climate change today, I would argue that it's only gotten more shrill. Maybe that's a function of social media. 24 7 365 connectivity um what what say you about that i actually i i think i i think i agree with that and i won't say i'll say it the same thing slightly different i don't know that it's gotten more shrill uh, shrill maybe it has maybe it hasn't it certainly ha there's been a, a massive amount of pressure placed on censoring a dissenting view you know, because back in the 70s, you could say, hey, Earth Day, the world's going to freeze. And you could say, no, that's BS. You can't say, no, that it, that's BS today. No, you can't. You just can't. I mean, in fact, I think we've been careful today and we haven't said anything, but YouTube, YouTube checks out our podcast. Yeah. You know, one of my favorites was overpopulation. That, that's sort of the most obvious one. But the one that sort of always got me was the mass extinction. That was Paul's. Ehrlich's prediction in, in his paper, the loss of biodiversity due to deforestation, habitat destruction, and overhunting was a significant concern. Some experts predicted that the extinction rate would increase rapidly if nothing was done to protect endangered species and their habitats. Going all the way back to the whales, brother. <laughs> all the way back to the whales. But 
I will say this. I don't think there's anything wrong with having an Earth Day. We should all want to take care of the Earth and all. Sure. It's, it's the hysteria that comes associated with it that I think is the bad thing. I mean, the pollution abatement that we've, you know, I can't go category by category. That's the technology that's been deployed and the practices that have resulted from being more thoughtful and more progressive about how you operate industrial businesses and how you use your own consuming your own life. Those are all positive things. And it's all been driven by the creation of wealth. I mean, Uh when people have a high standard of living, they can be more thoughtful about these things. When you make $2,500 a year, guess what? You don't really care about the earth. You know, what's interesting is I've talked about this before because I've blogged about it, but Milton Friedman has an article in 1970 that really debates sort of the Earth Day points regarding, and and at the time was about pollution and that pollution is going to kill. And and he went on to write a, a great narrative around corporations that sort of get involved in trying to spend too much money doing things that they think are best without and instead over maximizing profits, those uh, founders or those management teams get sacked. And so what's interesting is that sort of logic has held up since 1970. Milton Freeman's been right ever since. So the, what, what I think is interesting is we've been talking about seeing this in oil and gas about you know, sort of the energy transition, but, um, you know, the, the majors are sort of, they're capped between these sort of two divisions. One side says, spend all your money on saving the planet. The other side says, spend all your money on maximizing profits, which means drill, baby drill. And they can only spend so much. If they go too far one side or the other, they're in trouble. So I do think, um, it's becoming a more normal thing in the narrative. It's becoming easier and easier. But the dissenting view is the challenge, which is interesting. That's why, of all people, Exxon is probably the most bold of all energy companies are still the strongest about their view of sort of the energy transition, but they're not, you know, they're not banging the drum saying, you guys are idiots. Well, the, the barrels aren't going to stay in the ground, at least in the near medium term. And so who produces those barrels to fill the gap? It's likely someone with a much lesser or less desirable ESG profile. So you want the mm-hmm. best in the world producing those those barrels. And, you know, their their charter for being public companies is about maximizing profits, right? Right. That's the limited liability. Because what is what's the stat? National oil companies produce two thirds of the world's oil, something like that. So, Good and stat. I know that I know this is an overgeneralization, but I'd much rather have Exxon producing oil than a national oil company. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, because because you know, publicly traded. I'd rather have a publicly traded or a private company versus any state. Interestingly, though, on the on the same queue, last week China bought its first stake into a Qatari gas field. So Sinopec acquired 1.25% share in its first phase of a $30 billion LNG project. So once again, we're seeing, you know, other nations move, especially China, move quickly to buy long-term supply of natural resources while we're sort of here bickering about Earth Day, which, which is a great narrative for us to be. We should be talking about Earth Day. We should be good stewards of the Earth, but we're watching... Our enemies, if you will, you know, saying if I'm a if I'm an American or if they're my enemy or not. But China's making long term moves. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think we've talked about this a lot before. But you know, the 
last week we spoke about the foreign ministers meeting. That's a prelude to the G7. And natural gas was a very unenthusiastic, I guess, uh, subject in in the matter of long-term commitment to to policy around transition. That was so diplomatically put, <laughs> so Mark. Good. That was impressive. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> it, it's kind of watch what they watch what they do and not what they say. Again, long-term commitments by a I'll call them a strategic adversary uh, among the, the 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 economic powers in the world. Long-term commitments to things like LNG. Uh, the Malaysians really accelerating their capital expenditures on growing their natural gas reserve base and wanting a Mm-hmm. a bigger stake in the LNG, uh, long-term LNG supply chain. Meanwhile, the G7 is saying we're not going to adopt policies that advocate for natural gas unless they address some type of shortfall and don't create a lock-in. Well, sounds like a big agreement with the Qataris is a bit of a lock-in on natural gas. A 27-year deal. Yeah. Or how, come, how come they get to do it and we don't, right? Yeah. So anyway. No, that's right. Well, that takes us mm-hmm. to another story, Chile. President Gabriel Boric, he has come out and said they are nationalizing their lithium business. I've got some stuff on this, so I actually went and researched. Um, He proposed this like 18 months ago, a pure nationalization. Like, hey, Chile, the government, we take over the reserves. You're out of here. Private companies that we have contracts with. That got shot down in the assembly because he doesn't have a majority there. Mm -hmm. So this proposal is, in effect, a shakedown. We want to. We 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 want more of the existing contracts. He said things like, "We're not going to touch the contracts in place. One of them's till twenty thirty. One of them's till twenty four forty three. But we would like more. Mm -hmm. We would like to participate. So it's a shakedown. It's still this proposal will have to run back through the assembly." He doesn't have a majority there, so who knows where it shakes out. But at the end of the day, this is being bantered about. What it means is going forward, it's terms that aren't as good for <coughs> private players, private partners. Right. And, and we've, we've seen this over many decades as it relates to oil and gas concessions. Right. Globally as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, the rules can change. And – Chile and Mexico and other countries are recognizing pretty quickly that there's a critical dependency on this massive build out and transition around batteries and EVs, for example, where lithium is a a key raw material in, in the value chain. And Chile controls, at least in terms of the rankings that I saw, by far the largest reserve at 9.2 billion metric tons. You compare that to China at a one and a half in the U.S. at about three quarters of a billion tons. So, what's what's farthest mm. upstream in this in this expansion? Uh, those that have the sovereign reserves are going to want more, yeah, of, of the rents to accrue. To what's the uh, famous you know rapper quote about? No gun, no power. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, if you have the uh, world's resource that's in finite quantities and it's really valuable what would you do and it's an economics play for sure because chile um wants to retain more of its cash it's kind of the resource curse um all over again but but that's what almost every you know sovereign that has rich resources what do they do they nationalize yeah yeah there's there's been background chatter around you know the development of the guyana basin for example where exxon is a big player and 
then just immediately south of that in uh, in Suriname, right? At least on the Guyanese side, about we we may want to think about modifying the terms that we have, and it's you know the the recognition pretty quickly that uh, you can you can extract more rents because they are fundamentally in the ground in your sovereign assets. And that's yeah. How's that working that's, for Venezuela, though? <laughs> well, yeah. There's your neighbor. No, but, I mean, 75% of the world's lithium goes to EV batteries for cars. So, and we've all, we've talked about this on BDE. The Inflation Reduction Act went all in on electric vehicles. Did not go on, did not go all in on lower emission cars. Went all in on all electric, in on EV. That's all right. in that's on right. EV. Pretty so, important distinction. Very important <clears throat> distinction. The other thing, though, that's interesting is lithium prices are down seventy percent since last November, and uh, so kind of interesting timing on uh, <clears throat> Chile deciding to do this. The one funny thing is I was taking notes for uh, BDE, and I actually spelled spelt Chile with an I because you're hungry. E. Yeah, I guess so. They're and, not on. They're not on Southwest. Um, system. Yeah, probably. That's right. That's right. And I, and I wrote Gabriel Boric, and uh, Jules thought I wrote garlic bread. So anyway, there you go with chili. With chili. Which hey, made, but which this, made a lot speaking of, sense. of lithium, because they do do storage. Our own homegrown Sonova, John Berger. You know, good entrepreneur here in Houston. Sonova gets a three billion dollar energy department loan just announced last week to go put rooftop solar and storage in lower income communities. So they're, they're leveraged, they're playing, taking the Elon Musk route, leverage the government because they're, they're, they're throwing cash All right. uh, to go build out more solar. So good for, good for Berger. I like him personally. Seems like a great guy. Mortifies me that the government's doing that though. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I need to ask him. I, I'll, I'll probably try to follow up and uh, see what he says about it. Yeah, see, see what he he's says. Public private. though, so he's probably have to be really careful. Yeah, exactly. And John's Our, pretty straight shooter. Like he's not, he doesn't bullshit. Right. But uh, yeah, no, that's uh, that's trouble. And that kind of mm-hmm. brings us to the Biden administration just came out with their EPA regulations uh, about power plants and just a little bit of backdrop there. Trump had put out the American Clean Energy Rules. Before him, Obama had put out Clean Power Plan. Courts shot down both of those programs. So this is the replace of that. Mark, what did you think about it? Well, I, th- I what think, did it say? I think the details think of the specifics come as early as this week was the headline that I saw on Reuters. Um, I, I think it has the most significant impact on those with natural gas generation capacity in their fleets because it imposes potentially uh, a CCS, carbon capture and storage, cost mm-hmm. and plan and technology or, or feasibility. And so the details around that are, are unclear. But one of the opinions that was was expressed in the article was, you know, this has a way of leveling the playing field through regulation. Um between natural gas fired generation and wind and solar, for example, right? You add a bunch of carbon capture yeah. costs to both existing generation and new generation. That's that's a different cost equation. 
I saw it as the carbon tax when I was reading all Pretty of that much. that you said. Yeah. We we basically much. got into the to the carbon tax and I'll say this at the risk of running the ire of the digital wildcatters community. I'm not opposed to a carbon tax, just pollution. We can all debate whether it's causing global warming, whether it's not causing global warming, but pollution is bad. I mean, you go to some of these big industrial cities and it's nasty, it's hard to breathe. So there is some price to pay because of that. Uh, I would never vote for one, though, because of the slippery slope. I mean, the largest government bailout in history that I recall was when GE was pumping PCBs into the Hudson River. And it became such a big issue that they know, you know they were too big to fail. We've heard this before. And so the government bailed them out um, and, and decided to set up all these, these funds to, to clean it up. Well... Let me take a guess and just write to your point, Chuck. I'm in agreement with you. As a surfer, as a person that loves the outdoors, I'm pretty sure those people manufacturing the PCBs, the scientists, would not feed that same material to their children, but they're completely fine with dumping it into a river. So I'm totally fine with cleaning up. If you're going to make money as, as a business, you've got to take in consideration all costs. Well, one of the costs I haven't been completely taken consideration is in the environmental impact. Now that also applies to renewables and we can talk about that as well, but that's something that no one's talking about. And, you know, again, we can just debate that probably next time. Yeah. The, this is, you know, I think you have to look at the entire set of, of, op, of options, right? Gas fire generation versus wind and solar and battery storage, which as we've discussed in previous shows, has trade-offs as it relates to pollution from things like mining right, and other bad things like uh, child labor, right, with cobalt, for example. So a full assessment of the trade-offs mm -hmm. as opposed to like we're doing with the major singling them out as a target. You need to yeah. address these things single-handedly and really accelerate <clears throat> spending on things like technology and innovation when that type of technology and innovation in this space can't be accelerated. Otherwise there'd be, I don't know how many, you know, way more about venture tech than I do, but how many more uh, very large <clears throat> energy tech funds, um, you know, if this, if this type of, of um, switch could be, could be done rapidly. Right. Yeah. And we still need to figure out a way to, do all the things you just said, Mark, and somehow bring China and India into it. Because at the end of the day, if they're going to continue to ignore um, cleaning the environment, et cetera, I mean, what what is it? 80% of, of ocean pollution comes from nine rivers in China. That's and right. They just throw their trash and send it down the river. If they're, if, We've got to figure out a way to get to get those folks involved. I mean, prosperity is one of those things, but... There's got to be other things to do because we say it all the time on this. There is no ping and non-ping part of the pool. I mean, it's one environment. So. I mean, I think China's still on a pace to build or commission two new uh, coal-fired generation plants every week. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Yeah. yeah. And and that goes back to our point of cheap if energy. they're going if cheap energy and if they're going to do that, maybe our dollars are better spent instead of trying to create 2% better 
uh, emission standards here or there, maybe it's better spent on technology trying to figure out how to get rid of CO2. You know, I mean, it, that's where it ultimately comes down to is capital allocation. Yeah, one one proven step, at least on a temporary basis, is what it's, I think, turning out to be. Whether it's a bridge, whether it's, you know, medium term part of the transition reality is, you know, we've, we've got a pretty good track record in the U.S. for reducing uh, CO2 by substituting natural gas for coal. Right. Right. CO2 emits or natural gas emits about 200 grams per uh, um, per uh, kilowatt hour and coal is almost double that depending right. on where you are in the coal quality spectrum. Right. No, that's exactly right. Which coal brings us to our favorite uh, country in Europe, Germany. So I got some random facts here on Germany. If you look at, because they, and the pr the premise behind this story we're talking about is they have now gone zero. Shut nukes. down the nukes. Shut down all no the nukes. nukes. Here are some random facts, though, about this, and let's see where this takes us. Their current electric uh, electricity prices are more than 2x their average electricity prices from 2017 to 2021. Damn. Now, it's still lower than 2022, their current prices, but 2x that uh, four-year span. Their power generation was 10% less in Q1-23 versus Q2, or Q1-22, and that has to do with the shutdown of nuclear, natural gas yeah. tight, uh, tightness. Even Greta favors nuclear over coal and what's the punchline of all this you close down the nukes you're just burning more coal and they have that heavy lignite it's not like it's not even cl close to clean coal they're burning mostly imported hard coal and oh, so they big, are, they're importing a big chunk well they, oh, shut, they stopped mining they coal. shut down their hard coal because of it was uneconomic to do so they've got a lot of it in the ground in germany but uh, they import a big chunk of their 100 percent imported hard coal from russia and well and i mean the 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 issue i have with this is okay great we can talk energy policy all they want we had the warmest winter in europe since yeah. 1881 yeah. and we averted a major european economic crisis these numbers scare me I mean, if Germany, the largest economy right. over in Europe, with a mild winter, with a mild winter, still has two x the average electricity prices, how do you build cars at two x the electricity prices? You know, how do you smelter things and all the the amazing manufacturing things the Germans can do? You know, that's the worry for me: is more expensive power, less power generation means less economic output in Germany. And I think Europe could actually bring down, you know, a worldwide economy if they wanted. It's interesting you're saying that because I was just reading about, I'm kind of digging this sort of green steel industry, but it's almost ironic because there's a Swedish company that's raising one and a half billion euros to go sort of build up uh, their green steel um, technology. So they're just using electricity versus coal. <laughs> And where's electricity coming from? So I'm like, it's it's hilarious. It's almost like, you know, for the energy guys in the room, you're almost sort of giggling at the idea. But but it's a real industry. People are trying to convert from coal-fired steel making 
um, and it could cut up to 95% of emissions. Now, the whole bullshit behind those stats is, well, where's the electricity coming from, idiot? Um, well, they plug it into the wall. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all you need to do. There was a, we, uh, we had, back when I was at Kane, we used to take all our CEOs out mm-hmm. to California and we'd go play three days of golf. And friends of I'm mine out. put on a, um, put on a golf tournament called the rock and roll golf tournament because he was in the music business. And it was, it was always a really good time. They had Tesla rep out there and this was gosh, probably 10 years ago, Tesla rep out there, delightful, cute, 24 year old, uh, beautiful blonde woman who's talking about it's emissions free. And Pete Shear, CEO of, of, um, one of our portfolio companies who is an engineer's engineer. Where do you think the electricity is generated? Well, you just plug it into the wall. It was <laughs> great. And I was just like, Pete, walk away. Pete, walk away. This is not fantastic. A well, I saw a report, guys. I shared this with you. But the potential energy demand from AI in 2050. Now, I love when people say to 2050 because no one knows what the hell's going on. We just talked about our Earth Day predictions. But they're saying it could be 1,500 terawatt hours per year. It would be three times the current energy demand powering the internet, which is only 600 terawatts an hour. So if that is true, AI is going to destroy us, but it's not going to destroy us the way Elon Musk says when he says, like, you know, it could be, it's a slippery slope and dangerous. It's going to destroy us because it's going to run us out of energy. It's going to kill us. You know, Colin and I talked uh, on BDE about a year ago. I forget who Microsoft bought. They bought one of the gaming companies. But no one talks about the Microsoft Xbox network. I mean, all these kids sit around all day long talking to each other. They're playing multiplayer games against each other. That uses more electricity than anything. And we're sitting around talking about Bitcoin mining is going to destroy the world because of its energy use. And Exxon's making too much money. I mean, that's that's, (laughs) exactly. All right. As we have ended the show the last few weeks, and just as a refresher, the British girlfriend has chided us for treating... Europe as a uniblock and just Somebody liberal use of us, but go ahead. Oh, throw me under the bus. What the <laughs> fuck? Dude? She's not even European. Jeez. She right. seceded, but let's That's go true. there anyway. So anyway, she has said, um, you guys say Europe and in fairness to her, Europe is 20 to 30 different countries. Mm. So we have done, uh, and our biggest fan on BDE is Vlad, the police officer down in Richmond. He has chided us for saying this is a deep dive when we spend two to three minutes on it. So within the girlfriend's parameters, within Vlad's we're, parameters, we're, we're talking people. We're doing a blurb on mm-hmm. each one of the European blurb. countries. It's a good word. That we're doing a blurb. I like a blurb. It's a blurb. So we're gonna do, we're gonna talk about Spain uh, real quick. Just some facts I'll throw out there about Spain. Their whole existence has been defined by the relative scarcity of energy. Their coal is really crappy, doesn't burn very well. They've got a little bit of natural gas. Um, And so they import 75% of their primary energy storage. So they're really vulnerable to the global energy markets and the tension in those markets and strifes. Their GDP per citizen is less than its northern neighbor's. But they're above Portugal, Greece, and and Poland, so they're they're slightly below economic activity. 
Um, when you look at their energy breakout, 44% oil, 22% gas, 4 to 5% coal, 12% nuclear, hydro is 2%. They are 5% wind. And I think they're the third largest generator of wind power in the world. 2% solar. solar and they wind up importing about 3.5% of their electricity, mainly from France. So that is kind of Spain in the in the nutshell. Which which has on the importation, I think I recall the UK was two percent imported. I, I thought UK was three to six percent. Okay. Yeah. So they're they're generally about the similar, same. but both have a, a risk concentration of a lot of power coming from France, which is mm-hmm. talked about moving away from nukes over time. So, Kirk, we talked about this last week on um, BD, during my colonoscopy. During your colonoscopy, and we're looking forward to your edited edited video to put in BDE as a public service announcement going sometime on. soon. But you no, know, we talked about this. One of the things that's becoming apparent to me, just researching each of these companies, countries, figuring out their energy use. I think Europe, and I'll treat them as the Uniblock for just a second, has this <clears throat> massive backup battery in france that's nuclear power absolutely and france has said we're going from 75 percent nukes to 50 percent nukes you just wonder if they're going to be able to export as much electricity as they currently do and what is what are those ramifications man we keep calling out warning signs aren't we We red flag maybe red flags at least in the new in the u.s we've got a capacity factor for nuclear that's well north of 90 percent Right. Replacing it with things in the 30s or down in the 20s, Mm. you know, creates an interesting problem to solve with with the amount of capital and redundancy that's going to be required to replace that capacity. Well, Chuck, Spain is has a bigger crisis going on. So just like chili and garlic bread, I've been tracking this. Okay, And, And we have been told the rain in Spain falls mainly in the plain but not this year. There's no rain in Spain pushing olive oil prices to record levels. Continuing drought conditions leave traders and analysts worried about this year's output. So prices have surged 60% to roughly 5.4 euros per kilogram. It's a big deal. So Spain, the largest producer of olive oil on the planet, which we love, I eat it every day, they're going through a crisis. There's no rain. There's no olives. Uh-oh. Now, what has that done to the wine business? That's got to be... Spanish wine's good, too. Spanish wine's really good. I've never had a bad wine from the Rioja region of, Damn. of Spain. Now you're so, talking. Yeah, no, it's... I'll uh, get a read on the on the wine. There you go. That, well, that'll be next week's. Yeah, exactly. The we, Italians and the French are probably applauding the drought as long as it doesn't hit them, so... Yeah. Um, we'll that, see. That is the uh, good BS from the uh, girlfriend <laughs> that with global warming, the great champagne region will be in the south of England instead of <laughs> France <laughs> coming very shortly and the Frenchies will get their comeuppance. But uh, anyway, all right. Any other thoughts on Spain? Because I do have a finger of the week. Great. We did a blurb. That was a good blurb. That was a blurb. So we did a blurb. The whole key with uh, Spain, dependent on everyone else. So, Absolutely. And that drives their policy. And you can see that in their policy. So, all right. The finger of the week this week goes to the aliens because oh, shit. last yes. weekend, 
Last weekend, we found six more cows that were mutilated kind of in and around College Station, so three different counties. And this is crazy. They find these six cows, laser precision cuts so that the tongue is taken out. They laser precision cuts so that the udders are gone. They actually bore a hole in the cow's rear end and take out their sex organs. There's no blood dripping around. There are no footprints. There are no tiger markets, uh, tire marks. And the craziest thing about this whole situation, and we've been having these for 50, 60 years, these cow mutilations, Mm -hmm. is none of the predators, vultures, whatever, will touch these animals. Wow. It's got to be the aliens. I'm speechless. Hopefully our... Cow mutilation expert Colin will rejoin us next week. And it is us- it is kind of ironic. We were talking about sex organs being cut out, and uh, Colin's not here because of his prostate injury. Right. So maybe. Well, let me ask you a question: Are yeah. they real cows? They are real cows. Have they been identified? Did they have a tag? Like, can a rancher say that was my cow, or are those cows something else? Or or should we go out on the road and interview? Dude, this some is of these this farmers? is a road trip. This is like a real thing. I mean. We've had years of this, and the explanations are, well, it's you know cults that do it, but nobody can identify the knives that make this. Some some people say it's it's just dead death, and when they decompose, the body pops that way. I don't know. I think it's the aliens. I, I thought I was going to hear much earlier in your in your rollout of that. You know, just the proximity to College Station. <laughs> New ag tech coming out of Texas A&M. <laughs> I was hoping we'd get, we'd get closer to Luchenbach. But, yeah. I mean, if we have to go to College we Station, to to College maybe. Station. The, uh, I always uh, say in Green Eggs and Ham, could you, would you with a goat? Hadn't heard that since last time I was in College Station. Sure. Dun, dun, dun. All right, everybody. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you liked it, please subscribe. Please tell your friends about it. And we'll be back next week. Cheers. Cheers.